if you're denying your spouse sex or if you're too busy for it or you've got a headache way too often, you're denying yourself the chance for a happy relationship. You're denying yourself the chance for a deep, emotional, connected relationship. Sex actually isn't just about doing it. It's about all the connective tissue and all the relationship that it creates outside of the bedroom. Today, we're going to talk about the sex-starved marriage. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. Don't forget at the end to rate and review us. Thanks so much. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to have back today with us Michelle Weiner davis founder of the Divorce Busting Center in Boulder, Colorado, which helps on-the-brink couples save their marriages. Her belief that most divorces are absolutely unnecessarily unnecessary allows her to work with troubled couples to look past problems and look forward to focus on solutions. Michelle is the best-selling author of eight books, including Divorce Busting, a step-by-step approach to making your marriage loving again, Healing from Infidelity, Divorce Remedy, and the one we're going to talk about today, The Sex-Starved Marriage. You can learn more about Michelle at her website, divorcebusting.com. And her books are available on Amazon and wherever you buy your books. And I got to tell you, I highly recommend them. So, Michelle, thank you for being back with us. Always a pleasure, Sarah. I enjoy it a lot. Thank you. So as I'm reading your book, uh, The the Sex Star of Marriage, and, you know, I've been married for 32 years, 32 happy years, and I'm reading it, I'm going, wow, oh, oops. This, <laughs> this, this was sounding way too familiar. I suddenly had all sorts of guilt. So let's start off with, like, because I'm clearly, there's, you talk in the book about high, you know, high um, desire people and lower desire people. So, but talk about, let's start off with like, what's the big deal? On the one hand, everyone talks about sex is, you know, sex is the big deal, but like, it's a percentage of the time of your marriage. It's a percentage of the time of your life. So what is the big deal? Well, let me back up just a little bit and, you know, give you a definition of what is a sex-starved marriage, because unlike what many people might be thinking, it's not a marriage necessarily without any sex. Um, As a matter of fact, unlike vitamins, there are no daily or weekly minimum requirements to ensure a healthy sex life. Um, So what is a sex-starved marriage? A sex-starved marriage is one where one spouse is desperately longing for more touch, more physical closeness, more sex, and the other spouse thinks, what is the big deal? Would you just get a life? It's just sex. But in answer to your question to the spouse with the higher sex drive, it's much more than just sex. It really is about feeling close and connected emotionally, about feeling in love, about feeling um, masculine, if you're a man, feminine, if you're a woman, it's about feeling that like everything is right in the world. It is really and truly about feeling close and connected. And when this major disconnect happens, what also happens in so many marriages is that friendship and any sort of even emotional closeness goes right out the door. They stop sitting next to each other on the couch. They stop spending time together, doing fun things together. They don't laugh at each other's jokes anymore. And they begin to lead lives that are um, very, very separate. And it places the relationship at risk of divorce, 
and infidelity. And there's something off. Another thing that happens in these relationships is that, and most people don't talk about it. In fact, therapists, experts don't even talk about this very much. But the person who has lower desire tends to control the sexual relationship, meaning if they're not in the mood, very often sex doesn't happen. And they don't necessarily, they're not mean-spirited, they don't necessarily do it to be controlling or to punish their spouse. It's just that if they're not in the mood, it's unlikely to happen. Additionally, the person with lower desire um, expects the person with higher desire not only to accept this decision, but not complain about it, and one more prerequisite, to remain monogamous. And in my nearly four decades of doing marriage therapy with couples on the brink, I'm here to tell you that that sort of expectation um, is unrealistic. I mean, it really hasn't been working out all that well. And I think part of the issue that is so uh, poignant is that when the person with higher desire uh, gets rejected, although the person with lower desire that may not be the intent, and certainly uh, when there is a rejection, the person with lower desire is just thinking, you know, I'm just not in the mood. They don't know what it means to their spouse to be physically, to want to be close. Uh, but in, because there is that rejection, the person with higher desire um, initially might approach the lower desire spouse by being vulnerable and saying, you know, I'm really missing us, our being physical with one another. I'm missing the closeness. I'm missing the sex. But if the lower desire spouse does not respond to that uh, plea for more physical closeness, the higher desire spouse, their vulnerability tends to shift rather quickly into irritability and anger. And I think everybody listening knows that anger is not exactly an aphrodisiac. So the more the higher desire spouse becomes angry, the less the other spouse wants to have sex. And the less the other spouse wants to have sex, the angrier the other partner gets. And you can see how it is truly a vicious cycle. And both spouses go into their own corners and sometimes can get stuck there, Sarah, for years. So you just answered about 27 questions in the last two minutes. <laughs> so I want to, because there were so many important points that were in there. So I want to actually roll back to the, literally okay. the basic start of it. Of, you know, But you've just given the whole overview. So now everybody got the great overview. Um, but just at the basics, this kind of cycle of loneliness and that sex um, is is so much more it has so much more meaning to the relationship especially for the one that's more desirous and for men in particular who who are looking at sex it's not about copulation and it's not simply about I'll call it getting it off that mm -hmm. it's about you know the connection and it's about their manhood as wanting to take care and please their wife right so it has all these other meanings to men in particular yes well I well, not just men, right. but, you know, I, I would say um, the research shows that more men than women complain about there not being um, enough sex in their relationships. 
However, I want to say early on in our conversation, Sarah, that I think low desire in men is America's best-kept secret because masculinity and virility are often inextricably connected. And so I think it strikes fear in the hearts of men when they think that they're not interested in sex, so they don't talk about it, they don't get help for it, uh, they don't go into the locker room and complain about it um, like they might about their wife not wanting to have sex. And so what ends up happening is that women uh, who are the higher desire spouse feel a tremendous amount of shame. They blame themselves. They wonder what's wrong with them. And I just wanted to get this out there uh, before we um, talk about the more stereotypical situation of men being the higher desire spouse. Um, but having said that, now that I, you know, laid the groundwork for that, um, I, you know, I have worked with so many couples and I've learned so much. It's such a privilege to hear men tell their wives what sex really means to them because women start out so often thinking it's just a biological urge. It's like scratching an itch, like if your nose tickles, you sneeze, you know, and it is so not that. So many men in my practice have said things like, everything is right in the world when we're close physically. I, it means so much to me. It so, goes so far beyond words in, in terms of how close I feel to you well, and I um, think when and, we're touching. Well, and they and, want to please these women, that it's not just absolutely. about pleasing themselves. There's this kind of stereotype Hollywood, you know, slam, bam, thank you, ma'am, roll over and fall asleep. But it's actually really important to men and their feeling of manhood that they've pleased the woman or pleased their partner. You're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, one of the um, times where I have to get tough with guys is that occasionally, I think it's really important not to have an expectation that both spouses are going to be in the mood for sex at the same time, and that I think it is not only okay, but it is a really great idea if one spouse is willing to pleasure the other spouse. Um, and just leave it at that. It doesn't have to be mutual. But so often um, when I say to, uh, to men that uh, I'll ask women, are you willing to pleasure your husband when you're not in the mood? And they say, yeah, absolutely, except my husband isn't interested in that. And I turn to him and he'll say, I mean, this is so common, he'll say part, a big part of what gives me pleasure is seeing her pleasure. Mm -hmm. So I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. I help them get over that. You know, to to really allow themselves to to receive the gift of physical pleasure without necessarily always having to feel that they're, um, you know, that they're the ones giving the pleasure right. themselves. But you're yeah. absolutely right because it, they they enjoy that. It helps them feel masculine. Um, and it's part of their self-concept. It's yeah. true. Yeah. Now, on the flip side, so let me ask you this. Women have spent their teenage years being told, you know, and, I, and I'm having guilt out, like I used to tell my da daughters, your body's a temple, your body's a temple, that in terms of guys are going to want to get into your pants, right, that they're going to want to go, mm -hmm. you know, that it's all about you're a sex object to them when they're young. Like there's all this message to women as the sex object. So we develop this paranoia 
of they just want me for it. So, you know, to me, there's like this, this, you know, long inbred perception of that they're, that they're not, we're not seeing that aspect of it underneath. We're not seeing the lovingness that their women have been trained that it's only about the physical act or that, that, that the men want the physical act. You know what I mean? You, you know what? Yeah, I do know what you mean. I think there's a lot of, when I talk to couples about their ideas about sexuality and where they believe it came from, there's a, there are a lot of different messages in our culture. A lot of people will tell me uh, that their parents have informed them about sex, their friends have, their school has, uh, the media has. And I, and I think it's a varied message. When they do get the message, that you just described, when, when young girls do get that message, I think it's super, super unfortunate. Um, not only does it um, pigeonhole incorrectly um, guys' interests and intentions and motivations, but I think it robs young girls turning into women of thinking of themselves as as having healthy desire for sexuality. If all they're thinking about is how do I protect myself as opposed to, you know, what's in it for me? Like, what's good about this? Um, yeah, but that's. I, I think that's a huge mistake. Yeah, but it's so not the message that's given to girls. It's don't get pregnant, don't have like what preserve your virginity, like all this like protective language around young girls or toward young girls. I'm, yeah, and and I think that's true. I I'm hopeful that with um, what they're teaching kids in schools in terms of sex education, that that's changing a bit. Um, but we, I guess, as parents. Uh, we can do what we can do to to change the message. Yes. So okay. So now that I digressed and I'm like reflecting, going, "Wow, that's kind of an interesting yes. challenge." But also, I even you know, as I said, I'm reading your book and I'm reflecting on on you know who I am and what messages I had when I'm young and what I've brought into to my life, and that there are these complex conversations in the head. Um, I'm, I'm really I'm really curious Sarah you now have mentioned that what is it that you what what got you thinking in the book well it was my husband will probably kill me for having all this conversation but um, <laughs> <laughs> oh Sarah no 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 um, no but it's interesting actually because I did I grew up in an era of the you know the the guys you know want to go you know feel your boobs or whatever so that there was this this you know protectivism or, or victim or something so that that and I realized that that's in me somewhere and then all the you know the busy women so you know I was going to ask you about you know what happens that you know when parent when women become mothers and it's there's multiple dynamics about how that shifts the relationship but the reality is that part of it is you're suddenly busy and you suddenly you know you're sleep deprived and you you know so that you don't you kind of compartmentalize sex time and mm-hmm. but you know don't come near me at two in the morning i got to get up at six right um mm-hmm. and i think that's a very realistic balance that has to be done and you have to let yourself go and go oh well, it's okay you know that the pleasure and the benefit to the marriage mm-hmm. is is more worth it versus the loss of 30 minutes of sleep so you know I, you're you're talking about a number of different issues here and the one is very common i think that it's very uh, typical for women when they have babies to, for their sexual desire to drop. 
for lots of different reasons. Their hormones are running amok. They have this new person in their lives, you know, that they have to take care of. They're exhausted. Uh, so often women tell me that um, when they, while they they used to feel that their breasts were really uh, you know the sexy part of their body, now when they're breastfeeding, they just become vessels for food and. You know, there's a lot that's going on for women in this early stage. And so people do need to understand that there are, there's an ebb and flow to everything in life, including sexual desire, and, in, you know, and also including when your desire levels are going to be matched and mismatched. That's not a problem. What is a problem is when one person is really unhappy for a relatively long period of time and the other person doesn't get it, doesn't care about it, and thinks that they should just go take a cold shower um, because that does not bode well for the marriage. It's so fascinating to me, Sarah, where when two people decide to get married, there are so many collaborative decisions that they make. They, whether to get married, when to get married, whether to have kids, how many kids they're going to have, where they're going to live, uh, whether it's going to be one or two career family, how they should spend their finances, how chores around the house should be done, and yet conspicuously missing from that mix is anything at all having to do with their sexual relationship. And in part, I think our culture is so about giving the message that when, where, how, how often we have sex is a personal decision. And I disagree. I don't think anyone should violate their, their values in a, in a big way. But if you are going to have a long-term, happy, loving, caring marriage, then there needs to be discussion, there needs to be compromise, there needs to be negotiation about what their sex life is going to look like. Well, and, yeah, go ahead. And, and it's, you want your, your spouse, you want your partner to feel loved and to feel satisfied and to feel honored, that it's not just about you, that it's about how do you please the, your, your, your partner as well. You know, we're talking about the men wanting to please the woman sexually, but just pleasing them as a person. So you're talking about when, when these women have kids and suddenly they don't feel sexy, their hormones are, are all wacky and, the, and they're um, tending to the kids. But just because you don't want to have sex as frequently as you used to, or you might be too tired or whatever that, it doesn't mean ignore your spouse. There was something in your book talking about how the men I'll call it, get totally ignored, right? So, and this happens mm -hmm. constantly where women, now they're laser focused on their kids and the men have become invisible. And That's right. you know, you talked about there's a way to attend to the men with affection, sex as well, but I'm just talking about even at the smallest piece of affection and appreciation and touch and kissing, just, you know, moments of it that make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple things there. One is a lot of uh Again, it's often women, not always women. Uh, they will tell me, the, the lower desire spouse will tell me, you know, there's nothing that I would love more than to hug and kiss and be physically affectionate, but I feel like I can't because every time we hug, I know sex is imminent. 
And so one of the things that I do when I work with couples um, is I talk to the higher desire spouse. I wonder what it would be like for occasionally for there to be physical affection, physical closeness without it leading to sex and to a person. The higher desire spouse tells me, I would love that. I just feel that that never happens. And part of the reason that it never happens is they don't have conversations like I'm having with you right now, which would be the lower desire spouse saying, I really would love to hug you right now, but I'm, I'm not in the mood for sex. But I really want, I want, to, I want to kiss you, I want to hug you. It would happen more often. That's one thing. But there's another thing that I think is really incredibly important that, that a lot of uh, your listeners won't necessarily know about. And it is probably one of the most important lessons that I impart when I work with couples when they have a sexual desire gap. And it's this. Most people have been brainwashed to believe that the human sexual response cycle goes something like this. First comes sexual desire, which means that it, it happens spontaneously. You could be doing anything, talking to a friend, taking a ride on a bus, doing the laundry, taking a hike in the mountains, and all of a sudden you have this random, lusty thought. That's desire. The second stage is that arousal, meaning you get with your partner, you start fooling around physically, and you, you start to feel aroused. The third step is um, orgasm. If your body's working properly, you have an orgasm. And the fourth step is resolution, where your body goes back to its normal resting state. However, there is a newer, more accurate model that reflects the way most of the world operates, and it's this, that rather than desire coming first, which leads to arousal, for millions and millions of people, the stages one and two are reversed, meaning that they need to be physically aroused before their, their brains register this is fun. I want to do this. I like this. I really do like sex. So what I'm talking about here is something that sex therapists and researchers have now labeled the difference between responsive desire and spontaneous desire. So spontaneous desire is that it just happens, and, and responsive desire is that it happens as a result of either being physically stimulated or turned on by some like some some other factor in your environment. And what's so fascinating to me, and this is where gender differences really does uh, come into play, is that something like only 10 to 20 percent of women feel spontaneous desire whereas something like 75 to 80% of men feel spontaneous desire. So what does this mean for couples? So many women have said to me, I'm not in the mood for sex, and they just say no. Instead of allowing themselves to be responsive to their partner's advances, even from a neutral state, you know, they may be thinking about what they haven't gotten done that day, Yep. or what happened at work that day. But if their partners 
um, you know, initiate some sort of physical contact to just say to themselves, well, let's see where this, where this goes. The vast majority of women tell me once we got into it, I really enjoyed it. I had a great time. I had an orgasm. My spouse was happy. We had a great time that evening. And so I often talk to couples about the importance, especially for women, to adopt the Nike philosophy and just do it because they are very likely to find out that once they get their feet moving, this is going to be a pleasurable experience for both them and their partners. Well, so, but let me ask you this though. Are these low desire, lower desire spouses, it's not that they don't know it's going to be pleasurable. It's that they're pushing that piece aside, like, and because they're, they're overwhelmed by their obligations or their commitments or their fear of, t- of being tired or what if the kids wake up, that they need to release the rest of those shoulds of their head to let themselves play right you know do they because when the couples come in do they say it's not that they don't like sex they just don't like it as often as the partner does well here's here's what happens when people who um have responsive desire compare themselves to their partners who have spontaneous desire they think there's something wrong with them they think they're not sexual beings they think they don't like sex and so instead of realizing what you're saying, Sarah, which is absolutely true, you know what, I'm, I'm preoccupied right now, but I'm just going to put it in a little container and I'm going to go with the flow. Um, they don't do that as much. When they do do that the way it sounds like you have or you know people should, um, it, it very often turns out to be a positive experience for all involved. Now, I want to you know, talk about a little caveat. This is like, this is true for millions of people. However, sometimes the level of one's sexual desire, if it's too low or too high, can be due to complex problems like sexual abuse in the past or emotional abuse or a long history of sexual dysfunction and therefore not wanting to have sex on one hand and on the higher desire uh, spouse's case, you know, it could be sexual addiction or sexual compulsion, but I'm not really addressing those more complex those, situations those are edge, right now. I'm, yeah. I was gonna say those are kind mm-hmm. of edge, I was gonna say those are like edge cases, although there are many, many people that suffer from them, but that's not the core of this discussion. That, that is not the core of this right. discussion, and, but the good news is that the core of this discussion, let's call it the more garden variety issues, there are, there are so many people who have misconceptions about there being low desire when they're not low desire at all. They're, they're just responsive desire people. And the whole idea of just giving themselves permission, as you say, to play um, not only will it change their ideas about themselves that they are actually sexual beings, but clearly if they're married to someone who's got a higher sex drive, it's going to make that person very happy and much nicer in general to be around. Let's go back for a second, actually, because, again, these people want to have happy marriages. And you talked briefly in the opening about what's going on in the head of the person being rejected, because... You know, you say that when you, when they've got this, when they've got had sexual satisfaction and been sexually connected, 
then everything gets better. They feel more connected than, you know, later on that night it's better, tomorrow it's better, you know, whatever it is. So talk about, again, what what's, what the, the chatter in the head is of the person who gets rejected and like what's going on in there and what they're feeling like because then where that trickles into. So let me just start by, I will answer your question, I promise, but let me just start by telling you something interesting. When you take people who have recently been rejected, meaning their spouse has you know, divorced them or if they're in a serious long-term relationship, they've been dumped, and you take these people and you have them undergo functional MRIs, what it's been found that the same regions of their brains light up as in the brains of people who have been physically hurt. And the same is not true for other um, negative emotions like depression or anxiety or sadness. It is not true for those emotions. It's only true for rejection. Rejection is somehow unique. And evolutionary uh, psychologists say they hypothesize that it's possible that at one point, um, many, many, many years ago, if a, um, an animal were to be ostracized from the group, it might have meant the difference between life and death because there's safety in numbers and that we might have these um, early alert systems in our brain that makes it feel like it's life or death when we, or death when we do get rejected. And I can tell you from my experience in working with couples that there's so many people who feel like they're not going to be able to survive when they feel shut out of their partner's life. So that's pretty extreme. But on when rejection occurs in the sexual context, the, the chatter, the self-talk that happens in the person with the higher uh, sexual desire is, you know, he doesn't love me, she doesn't care about me, she's not attracted to me, um, she's spiting me, she's punishing me, um, she doesn't love me anymore. Uh, it, it is, it's very extreme, and of course, it's entirely possible and even probable that none of those things are true, but whether they are or not is irrelevant, because once your self-talk goes in that direction, you begin to behave in certain ways that's not conducive to perpetuating a loving marriage. And people tend to go into their own corners, and again, they lead parallel but very separate lives. It is incredibly hurtful and lonely. And what does it do to their just their individual self-esteem? I mean, besides the fact that, oh, they don't love me anymore, just as an individual, fear it's, of... It's, it's terrible. I mean, it's, you know, it's ironic to me when I'm sitting there listening to these two people where one person has the self-talk that I just described and then wondering what's wrong with them. Aren't they attractive enough? Aren't they sexy enough? Um, when I hear the other stuff, and in their mind, it has absolutely nothing to do with that whatsoever. Of course, occasionally it does, but let's just talk about the times when it doesn't. Um, it, you know, it's, um, it's difficult to, people have to work really hard on themselves to say, you know what, this is not about me. This is about uh, maybe a lot of other things, but it's not because you know, that I'm not a good person. It's not because I'm not attractive. 
Um, it's, it, there's a lot of work to be done there, and it, it takes a lot of convincing, and for some people, they just don't get there. And I'm going to ask an obvious question. So, um, obviously, that it, you know, what if you reject it once, okay, fine, but is it, you know, as a, a pattern continues, the more someone gets rejected, obviously that builds on itself. Um, piece one, piece two is, does it matter how I reject you? Like, honey, I'd love to, I'd love to get together with you right now, but I just can't right now. How about tomorrow night? Like if, if you give well, them a... Yes. That's that. In fact, that's one of the things I talk to couples about is don't say no, say when. Um, how you how you say you're not in the mood can make a really really big difference. And if you say when, don't have it be six months from now. It has to be sooner. Um, you know, um, I and again I think part of this part of the problem is the person um, with lower desire doesn't necessarily realize how hurtful it is. In fact, I'll I'll tell the story that you uh, briefly referred to um, of a couple that I had worked with, and it just, this is a story I will never forget. Um, they were married for 15 years. Um, he, uh, he was the kind of guy who very rarely complained about anything, but at the end of one particular session, he says, yes, there is something I want to talk about. And then he proceeds to say the following. He said, you know, um, there truly is only a two-hour window of opportunity on Friday nights between 10 and 12 when my wife is willing to have sex. And I know that. So I don't bother asking her at any other time. And if it doesn't happen on that Friday, I know it's definitely not going to happen until next Friday. And as he said this, she began to chuckle. But I noticed because she recognized herself in that description, but I looked at him, he wasn't laughing. And so I said, John, what is that like for you? And he took a deep breath because he never liked to complain, but he looked at her and he said, you know, when I reach out to you in bed and you're not there for me, I start to wonder, do you still love me? Are you attracted to me anymore? Do you even want to stay married to me? And then when you go to sleep and I am staring up at the ceiling, hearing you breathing, all I can tell you is that it is the loneliest feeling in the world lying next to you in bed. And to his wife's credit, her eyes filled up with tears and she reached out and she grabbed his hand and she said to him, do you know that every time you touch me, the only thing I ever think about is, am I in the mood? Am I not in the mood? I never, not once, have thought about what it's like to be you. Right. And I am so, so sorry. And I promise you, I will do better. And he got teary-eyed, and I got teary-eyed. It was one of those r really poignant moments. Yeah. Um, because, and I don't think, I don't think, you know, in the... In the same way that the person with lower desire might be thinking all, all he or she wants is my body, um, the person with higher, I, the person with lower desire is not necessarily and usually not trying to hurt the higher desire spouse. Sometimes it's purely an unknowing what it's like to be on the other side. Yes, exactly. And that was, that was such a poignant example of it. 
So mm-hmm. what are so again given that the low desire person is so out of touch necessarily with what's going on or everybody compensates on their own are there call it symptoms of a sex starved marriage that people can just be on the lookout for if your spouse is doing this then you know it's bigger than oh well they're fine cuz they're not asking me anymore but you know we're still talking at the dinner table um well, you know, I think, are you asking me, are there symptoms of a sex-starved marriage in terms of the higher desire spouse I'm, I'm, being upset about it? No, I'm asking for if people are in a marriage. So, they, you know, people, they kind of settle into their thing and you've got your routine and they think, well, as long as he's still talking to me or she's still talking to me, then everything's okay. Like you kind of, mm-hmm. when you go to your corners and you make do, that mm-hmm. that it's fine so you figure everything's fine but are there actually mm-hmm. things that they should be attending to that say it's not fine and this really is a sex starved marriage like my husband never touches me my wife never mm-hmm. smiles at me like because you talked in the book mm-hmm. about how that you know resentment comes in and disdain comes mm-hmm. in there are all these other elements that you know deep emotional hurt but they may mm-hmm. be a- unaware of it because they're just kind of in their, I'll call it parallel play of life. Well, here's what I have noticed that that happens. Initially, the focus, uh, when there's a sexual desire gap, the focus of their um, conflict is, is the light is shone is shine shown on their sexual relationship. But when that doesn't get resolved, there become complaints about everything else. It comes out sideways. So there's irritability in general. There is a lot of distance. Um, there's discontent that people don't feel close to one another. And by the way, just because one person stops complaining about something doesn't mean everything is okay. In fact, um, what, what typically happens is that when one person finally gives up emotionally, relinquishes, throws in the towel, they can very often be planning their exit strategy, whether it's um, going outside the marriage for an affair or planning an eventual divorce. And so for me, the antidote to all of that is open, ongoing dialogue. And suffice it to say that unless two people say to each other, I'm not into sex, I'm okay with our relationship being platonic. I love having you as a partner, as a spouse. I'm not upset at all about us, you know, not having sex. And that has to be consensual. Unless that happens, you can hear me say that when one person is interested in sex more than the other, even if there doesn't seem, even if there's no ongoing uh, fighting about it, it's an issue. Don't take non-discussion as a sign everything is okay. You know, there seems to be this taboo. It's shocking to me. People who are married, you know, sometimes 25, 30, 35 years or more, they don't talk about sex. I'm the first one to bring it up in their lives. And so don't be complacent about it. You must say, are you okay with this? How are you feeling about our sexual relationship? Are you okay that we haven't had sex in six months? You need to ask the question. 
And, and there's another piece to all of this that I think is super important. I, you alluded to it, Sarah, about caring and being compassionate for what makes your spouse feel loved. Everybody has different love languages. I'm sure many of your listeners are, are familiar with the book, The Five Love Languages. And, you know, without going into details about the book, you know, some people feel loved through conversation. Some people feel loved through touch. Some people feel loved through when you do kind acts, um, acts of service, it's called. Some people feel loved when you buy them gifts. And other people, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting what the fifth one is right this minute, time together, when you spend time together. Everybody is different. The fact that you're different is not problematic. But what tends to happen in most relationships is you show love to your partner in the way that you like to be shown love. But that's not real love. Real love is when you learn what is important to your partner and you show love in their language. So, for example, there's often one person who needs to feel close and connected emotionally, which means time together and talking before they're interested in sex. And they're often matched with another partner who needs to feel close and connected physically because their love language is touch before they're interested in investing themselves in spending time together and having meaningful conversation. And what tends to happen with two people who have been together for a long time is if their needs are not being met, they decide, sometimes consciously, sometimes not so consciously, they're not going to be nice to their spouse. So they both wait for the other person to change. And that is a deadly waiting game. I always say that's job security for marriage therapists. But the truth is, and, I, and, I, and sometimes this is just shocking for people who don't have touch as a primary love language, the truth is there are many, many people who the most important way of feeling connected and, um, and, and adored and cherished and separate from all others is an arm around the shoulder, a hug, a kiss, sexuality. And you can do a million other things, like give them compliments, spend time talking to them, take time out of your very busy schedule to be with them and that'll be nice but it won't be it won't hit the mark the mark is hit primarily by physical closeness so people need to understand that yeah well and i think also another piece of it that you know it it sounds in some ways that you have to have this conversation of okay let's reach a new agreement and we'll switch but in fact it only takes one person to change that if I change the way I'm behaving, then my partner is going to change. If I suddenly get more considerate to my partner's desires, and mm-hmm. you know, flip the way my understanding is of what that you know those those um, touches are meant to be. So if you open yourself up, then if you change, as you said early on, you know, suddenly you're open to to having sex more often suddenly they change entirely and it trickles through the whole relationship right so to you know, ha- i will tell you um what you're talking about if more couples understood that there would be no need for marital therapy sorry i just put um, you out of business I, I, I will just say you know i i'm someone who uh really you know enjoys you know close connected communications why i do what i do as a you know marriage therapist and my husband has 
as his primary love language touch. If if there ha- you know if I feel shortchanged because we haven't spent enough time together one on one having these conversations, I'm less interested in being physical with him. And when I'm less interested in being physical with him, he gets kind of irritable and not so nice and sometimes nasty and you know short tempered. Well, believe me, he's the last person I want to have sex with when he's like that. But that's where the rubber meets the road. It's when I see him being irritable and unkind and short-tempered, instead of saying to myself, that self-talk that we referred to before, instead of saying to myself, he is such a jerk, I don't know why I married him, what I need to say to myself is sometimes his sense of rejection shows up as irritability, and I wonder, when is the last time we had sex? And so when I remind myself of that and I become flirty again and I initiate sex or I send him a flirty text, all of a sudden my husband's back. You know, right. I find this really nice guy. And, but it's not what I would feel like doing at that moment because I am not getting my needs met. If more people understood that when their spouses are behaving in a way that is distasteful to them. It could just be that they're hurt because they're feeling shortchanged. And if everyone took more personal responsibility um, to understanding what really makes their spouses sick and be more compassionate, it would be a better place for us to be world to live in. Thousand percent. I think if there's one takeaway for people to understand out of all of this, besides the you know alternate you know changes of desire and everything. But that, like, when they see their spouse being irritable, cranky, picking at them, whatever, that there's something going on underneath and that they yeah. need to be attended to. Absolutely. And you yeah. know what? The same is true in reverse. I don't want this to sound like it's a one-way street because you and I are women talking about, you know, maybe our, our spouses have, you know, higher desire. When my husband sees me not being in the mood for sex and maybe rejecting him, Instead of saying, I married an ice queen, I don't need to put up with this crap, what he needs to say to himself was, when was the last time I arranged a date night? When was the last time I sat down and asked her, asked her what's going on in your life? Tell me you know, yeah. what's been important and on your mind. So it is a two-way street. He Absolutely. won't feel like doing it if he's feeling sexually shortchanged. Yes. It doesn't really matter what you feel. It's that same thing about the Nike uh, you know, just do it. Do the Nike right. thing. Just, yes. just do it. Exactly. Right. But I'm saying that I, I can't change. I can't change my husband's behavior. No one can change their partner's behavior. You can change yourself, and that will change their reaction to you. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. All right, yeah. Michelle Weiner Davis. We could go on forever and ever and ever. Um, and I hope that someday we do. <laughs> We, yes, indeed. All right. Well, the book is The Sex Star of Marriage. Your website is divorcebusting.com, and you're fabulous. Thank you so very much. Thanks. Always fun talking to you, Sarah. Thanks. I'm talking to Michelle Weiner Davis, founder of the Divorce Busting Center in Boulder, Colorado, which helps on the brink couples save their marriages. She's the best selling author of eight books, including Healing with Infidelity, Divorce Remedy, and The Sex Star of Marriage. Michelle has been helping couples and readers of Bottom Line Personal improve their relationships both inside and outside the bedroom with her communication strategies for many years. She's just one of thousands of top experts who are part of the brain trust of experts for our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal. 
where we provide guidance not just regarding marriage and relationships, but in all aspects of your life, including managing the healthcare system, financial planning, living a healthy life, how to save money on travel, insurance, smart tax strategies, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips of all time from our experts. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.